This is episode 128 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Peter Belafsky. He is a professor and the director of the Voice and Swallowing Center at the University of California, Davis. He's the vice chairman of academic affairs for the Department of Otolaryngology at the UC Davis School of Medicine, and is a professor in the Department of Medicine and Epidemiology at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. His research interests are focused on the development and application of innovative translational treatments for complex voice swallowing and airway disorders. He has dedicated his career to building an internationally recognized swallowing center. The Transdisciplinary Center at UC Davis brings together outstanding physicians, SLPs, veterinarians, nutritionists, rad techs, general surgeons, gastroenterologists, and translational scientists to provide innovative approaches to the diagnosis and management of quaternary voice swallowing and airway disorders. He has pioneered minimally invasive treatments for voice and swallowing disorders, including unsedated treatment of laryngeal cancer, polyps, leukoplakia, and papillomas, tracheal and esophageal strictures, and office-based esophagoscopy. In October of 2010, he was the lead investigator on the second larynx transplant in the world on a woman who had been unable to speak for over a decade. Dr. Belavsky has a dual appointment at the UC Davis of Veterinary Medicine and has also pioneered numerous treatments for small animals, such as cats and dogs, with profound swallowing and breathing problems. His team has saved countless suffering animals, and his work has led to innovations in both humans and animals. His transdisciplinary approach has resulted in five first-in-human surgeries and seven first-in-canine surgeries. He has over 150 publications, numerous patents, and has helped initiate three startup companies based on technology he has developed at UC Davis. Dr. Belaski remains restless with current treatment limitations and has dedicated his career to the development of innovative therapies to help suffering patients with dysphagia. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Peter. Hi. How are you today? (laughs) Doing good. Thank you. Good. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to chat with you today and, and discuss all things reflux and swallowing disorders related. My pleasure. All right. So if people don't know who you are, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Peter Belafsky. I'm the director of the Voice and Swallowing Center at the University of California in Davis. I've been here approximately 15 years. I did most of my training in New Orleans and fellowship in North Carolina, and I've been in California ever since. And I, I believe you were the one that created the, or, or was on the paper for the reflux finding score. Is that right? Yeah. In the beginning of my career, we spent a lot of time really trying to define what we were seeing every day in treating. And so we've done a lot of work and put a lot of sweat equity in developing an instrument for reflux. Uh, so we developed the reflux finding score, which is an endoscopic assessment of laryngeal inflammation. We also developed the reflux symptom index, as well as the eating assessment tool. And most recently, we developed a five-item 
patient-recorded outcome measure for pill dysphagia, which I think is really under underappreciated. Oh, cool! Is that is that published yet? It is. It's called the Pill Five. All right. I, I don't know about that one. Keep me on your toes. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That did throw me for a loop. So, awesome. All right. Well, where where do you want to start today? What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about how many people on this planet have reflux and the, suffer the consequences of it? I would love to. Yeah, well, as you know, it's it's a lot of people. It's uh, 20% of adults in Western culture. And the majority of people have mild symptoms, heartburn, regurgitation, sour taste in the mouth. But a growing percentage of people have complications of reflux, such as swallowing difficulty, esophageal stricture, esophageal metaplasia, and esophageal cancer or adenocarcinoma of the esophagus is the most rapidly expanding cancer in the Western world. Oh, wow. Yeah, yikes. Yikes. The good news is it's a good good business to be in because you can help a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So t- tell me, when, when do you see patients, Peter? You're, you said you're an outpatient setting? Yeah, I'm an out- I see predominantly outpatient. We have, a, you know, UC Davis has a, you know, it's a large facility, so we have uh, about a 650-bed hospital with um, 30 operating rooms. Um, we have outpatient research facilities. We have a large animal facility. I'm also a professor at the School of Vet Med at UC Davis, and we take care of mostly small animals with complex swallowing problems. And believe it or not, um, a lot of canines with problems related to reflux disease. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, dogs get GERD, too. Oh, I was just about to say that's so cute, but it's not cute. I feel bad <laughs> for them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's cool. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think what I find so fascinating about what you've done and kind of what you're talking about, too, and something that I'm really passionate about is, you know, I do fees. I'm really passionate about fees. And I so many times I feel like I'm constantly, you know, I always do the reflux finding score with, you know, with my report. And it's so common that we find patients with reflux with, you know, whether it's LPR, GERD, and I, you know, I want to get into that in a minute, too. But I've gotten some pushback from some physicians that are like, you you constantly document that you think patients are having this. And I'm like, I think it's much more of a problem than we give it credit for. And so I think, you know, I, I not that I like hearing what you're saying, that it's so common and that we, you know, it's growing and increasing, but we do have a role in detecting that and reporting that to our physicians. And I think it'd be negligent of us to not be reporting on that. Yeah, sure. And I think what's important to recognize about the reflux finding score, it's, quantification of laryngeal inflammation. So it is important to recognize that other things can certainly cause laryngeal inflammation, whether it's environmental pollutants or allergens or some um, habitual exposures. Um, Tobacco certainly can cause chronic laryngitis. Some chronic infectious processes can cause chronic laryngitis. So we've utilize the reflux finding score as one tool in our toolbox to, to take care of our patients. Okay. And do you think that it's, you know, like you said, um, it could be caused by inflammation from laryngitis. I've, I've had, you know, I've had conversations with other SLPs that are like, I don't, you know, we'll be looking at kind of the same larynx and they will say, you know, I don't think that's reflux related. I think that's inflammation from a cold or something like that. And I think that's what's hard to decipher 
Yeah, I don't know that there's certain sort of pathognomonic findings on endoscopy that can say definitively that this patient has acid irritation in their throat that's contributing to their symptoms. So it's the reflux finding score is really just a tool we have to quantify laryngeal inflammation, and it's non-specific in terms of what could be contributing to that inflammation, if that makes sense to you. Yep, yep, very much so. So I think, how would you recommend that we document that? Um, you know, I think the, you know, this patient has the presence of, as an inflamed larynx, as quantified by a reflux finding score of whatever it is. And there is a certain amount of background inflammation, so we don't even really quantify a reflux finding score that's less than less than six, really, or five and above as, as, as being abnormal. Yeah. Have, did you guys do a lot of inter-rater reliability with that? We did, and the individual line items are not very reproducible, but the normal or abnormal is. Okay. Yeah. So that's sort of how we utilize it. It's, you know, this is an inflamed larynx or it's not an inflamed larynx. It's really a reliably a dichotomous variable. Yeah. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. I've gotten kind of like into the weeds, like in the nitty gritty with some other speech pathologists about, is this a two or is this a three? Mm-hmm. You know, and like kind of arguing back and forth. And it's like, if we step back and look at the big picture, yes, it's inflamed. So, I, right. Yeah. And that's, and that's yeah. the important point. You know, this is an inflamed larynx and we can quantify a larynx as normal or inflamed. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about you know, kind of where do we go from here? So we realize we have an inflamed larynx, you know, we sent to ENT and, you know, we know that we have kind of a gamut of different treatments and there's the world of PPIs, which carry their own, I guess, wonders, but also side effects. And then there's also a new product that you're a part of. So I'd love for you to kind of take it from here. Sure. We don't, you know, we don't treat an inflamed larynx. We can see, an inflamed larynx and somebody who's completely asymptomatic, we treat patient symptoms unless unless the larynx is so inflamed that it's causing complications such as airway compromise or you know, or dysphonia. So we're not we're not really treating an inflamed larynx, we're treating our patients. So it really depends on the severity of their symptoms in addition to our endoscopic findings, whether it's an inflamed larynx and or an inflamed esophagus, which is also another important piece of the puzzle when talking about treating patients with with reflux disease. So in an asymptomatic patient, you know, moderately inflamed larynx doesn't concern us, but in somebody with with globus and dysphagia and cough, and intermittent dysphonia and the sensation of post-nasal drip and regurgitation and all these other symptoms, well, then it, it has a lot of meaning to us. So our first, our first, the first thing we do when we're evaluating a patient is really ascertain is this, are there other causes for their symptoms other than reflux? Are there vocal cord nodules? Is there a subtle vocal fold weakness? Um, like a vocal fold uh, paresis or immobility contributing to their voice symptoms? Is there an underlying cancer? Is there some other disorder that could be causing their symptoms? 
And then if um, you know, we have a high index of suspicion that their symptoms are related to reflux, uh, the next thing we do is do esophagoscopy because that sort of helps us allocate is this a symptom-driven process, meaning it's mild or no endoscopic abnormalities, or is this somebody with complicated reflux disease, which could be stricture, ineffective motility, Barrett's metaplasia, even dysplasia, and even cancer. So not just laryngeal endoscopy, but esophageal endoscopy is an essential part of our workup because it allows us to assess the severity of their mucosal injury in addition to their symptoms. So if esophageal endoscopy is, you know, let's sort of go down the pathway that their larynx shows mild to moderate inflammation, their esophagus is um, unremarkable, and this is basically, and they don't have dysphagia and a motility disorder, you know, this is essentially a symptom-driven disease. Right, so let's classify this person as uncomplicated reflux disease. The, we start with a very conservative approach. So this is going to be behavioral modifications, a diet and exercise. You, you know the drill better than anybody. You know, elevate the head of the bed, avoid um, eating meals late in the evening. You know, gastric emptying is approximately four hours. So you want to give yourself three or four hours after you eat before you lay down and acids on demand and sort of move up from there. And if their symptoms are recalcitrant to the behavioral modifications, uh, you know, our next line of therapy in somebody with uncomplicated reflux disease is the alginates. Alginates are wonderful demulcents, meaning they coat the esophagus and perfect, uh, and also the throat and prevent tissue injury. They also form a raft on top of the gastric contents within the acid pocket of the stomach to actually prevent regurgitation, and we've sort of called that the esophageal cork. So alginates are a wonderful, all-natural step-up treatment for, for reflux disease. And there are going to be some people that that's just inadequate, and then we'll go to anti-secretory therapy, which could be H2 blockers or uh, proton pump inhibitors. Right. Did I say that all in one breath? You did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. So now we're going to break that down a little bit. Okay. Um, so I, I want to back up a little bit and I want to talk about just for people that don't get to see this every day or, or really don't, you know, we, we make the recommendations, we make the referrals, but sometimes it's like sending the referral off into the abyss and you have no idea what ends up happening to it. If you can just explain a little bit more about what the esophagoscopy, what that does, what that, you know, looks for, how the procedure is done. Because I think there's a lot of speech pathologists that, you know, know that that's probably what's next for their patient, but they don't know what to, you know, tell them to expect or what kind of the results they may get from that. Right. I think speech pathologists as a whole are just starting to realize how important the esophagus really is a huge key player in all this. Sure. And they're actually, we've actually trained numerous speech pathologists overseas to perform office-based esophagoscopy. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. So maybe someday here. Maybe someday. Yeah. So esophagoscopy, first and foremost, is performed to rule out tumor. So you know, the thing you don't want to miss is an early cancer because esophageal cancer if found late, has a horrific prognosis. It's like a 
95% five-year mortality. But if caught early, it could have a 95% survival. So it's really essential to catch an early tumor. So that's our, our primary goal of endoscopy is really to rule out cancer or to identify an early precancer. The um, second thing is to identify comp- other complications of reflux disease, which the most common thing we would see is erosive or peptic esophagitis, which is erosions caused by the self-digestion of the esophageal lining from acidified pepsin. It's not actually the acid that causes the injury, it's the pepsin, which is a proteolytic enzyme that causes the tissue injury. Pepsin is active at a lower pH. So that's why increasing the pH of the stomach with anti-secretory therapy decreases the activity of pepsin and promotes esophageal healing. So the summarize here, first thing we look for is cancer. Second thing we're looking for is to rule out peptic or erosive esophagitis. The third thing we look at is are there other causes for the patient's symptoms like an infectious esophagitis. One of the things we see commonly would be like a yeast infection, like a candida esophagitis. And the other thing we see relatively frequently, which is being identified more often, is an allergic esophagitis or eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a food allergy. The other things we can evaluate on endoscopy would be esophageal webs and rings and strictures. And in our experience, swallowing fluoroscopy is more sensitive in evaluating webs, rings, and strictures than endoscopy. You see them better on fluoro. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Okay, so now let's, I want, I want to still continue to digest your whole one big breath blurb. So, uh, what, um, so I want to talk about a little bit, a little bit more about kind of the, the treatment aspect of, you know, you had mentioned the alginate. Can you explain that? In terms of how we utilize our alginate in our treatment algorithm? Yeah, and, and what it even yeah. is. So I think if, if I say right. that, people are like, what, what even is that? So. Yeah, so, so, the active ingredient for our reflux uh, product, Reflux Gourmet, is uh, sodium alginate, which is just seaweed. It's all natural. It's literally it's it's seaweed, and it is uh, combined with a source of calcium. In our product, it's vitamin B5 is our calcium source. So we combine calcium with vitamin B5, and the calcium interacts with the alginate as well as with bicarbonate to form a foamy raft in the stomach, which literally prevents regurgitation. And that's sort of the esophageal cork that I was referring to. And we did a study, gosh, it's probably nine or 10 years ago, where we actually took an alginate product and we took, um, we had a a rodent model of squamous cell cancer in the hamster cheek pouch. And we painted the cheek pouch with a, a carcinogen. And if you paint the cheek of the hamster daily for, you know, 10 to 12 weeks, they will all develop a squamous, a squamous cell cancer. And then, so we had our controls and then we put the alginate down and then put the carcinogen down and none of the animals developed cancer. Wow. 
So, yeah, so that was, it has a really a wonderful protective effect in lining the throat and the esophagus. So that's its true pri- two primary mechanisms of action are that demulsant or protective effect and two is the raft forming effect once it gets into the stomach to prevent regurgitation. Awesome. How how did you guys or, or how long has this been you know known I guess because I think when when I when I saw that you guys came out with this product I was like oh my god how did they realize that seaweed yeah. did this like yeah. <laughs> you know raft forming agents have been around for a long time probably since like the late eighties and there's been products available overseas that have been difficult to get in the U S uh, and also aren't all natural they actually have a carcinogen in them called paraben. So I had a patient of mine who's a Michelin-rated chef from Napa, from La Toque in Napa, and I talked with him about, hey, you know, is this something we could do on our own? He's like, absolutely. I would cook with alginates all the time. So Ken and my, myself and a good friend of mine named uh, Ramon Franco, who's my counterpart at, at Harvard, got together and made reflex grooming. Awesome. Which is an all-natural alternative. So. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just want to tell everyone kind of how I stumbled upon it. I so recently just had a baby. And when I was pregnant with my, when I had my son four years ago, I didn't really have bad reflux or bad acid reflux. But with this one, it was like, I mean, early on, it was like three or four months that I started just having horrible reflux. And I was like, I'm never going to survive these nine months. Like, this is miserable. And, you know, of course my doctor was like, oh, just, you know, take Zantac, take, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay. So I started taking Zantac for a few weeks and it was right around the time that the huge like recall thing came out. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, is this, you know, at first I'm like, is this safe for me to be taking for me and my baby? You know, I'm like, well, the doctor said it's okay. It must be okay. So I'm, you know, trying to be a good patient and abide by patients or, you know, doctor's orders. But at the same time, I'm like, there's got to be a better way. Cause I really don't want to pop this pill for my entire pregnancy. And at the same time, I just, you know, was Googling and I found your reflux gourmet product and I was like, Oh, this sounds awesome. I'm going to give this a try. So I ordered it and then come to find out you, you were one of the creators of it. So <laughs> I was like, this is just the coolest thing. So I did actually end up using it the majority of the rest of my pregnancy and it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saving my, yes from having to pop Zantac the whole time. So. <laughs> and I, the worst part was then it, yeah, like was when Z, when Zantac got recalled, so you couldn't even find it on the shelves anywhere. So I was like, what in the world am I going to even use? So. Yeah. Did your reflux stop immediately after delivery? Yes. Instant relief. Yeah. That's funny how that happens. <laughs> yes. Apparently the, like my baby's butt was like up, like up almost under my ribs the whole time. So the doctor was like, she's probably just pressing on, you know, your esophageal sphincter the whole time. I was like, oh my God. Well, wait till she's a teenager. Your reflux will be, will be back. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Awesome. Well, that's great. What else do you want to tell us about it? I don't know. Let's talk about all things swallowing. That's obviously both of our passions. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about? Yeah. So what are, yeah, what are some of the biggest challenges you have in the nursing home setting in trying to help people? 
Yeah, I, I think it's, well, it's honestly the lack of education. Um, I mean, first of all, it's really hard to even, for some places to even get fees or get endoscopies or even get, you know, patients to not for fluoros because they don't even understand the purpose of instrumentals. And so that's kind of where my whole crusade started with, you know, starting my company, but then also this podcast is just educating people about how important it is to have instrumentals done to be able to treat our patients. And I, you know, I like having your perspective too, because sometimes, you know, these administrators will say, you know, we don't need to spend money on getting that instrumental assessment. You can just do some, you know, exercises and the patient will be fine. But then there's those of us that have been doing them long enough that realize, no, you know, this could be, as you said, could be esophageal cancer. It could be something that is deadly in a few years. So that's really my, my whole passion project. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. So I know obviously you're, you have the luxury of being in an outpatient research setting, so you don't have to, I guess, face some of those issues, but it's, it's, uh, it's part, you know, the system, but then it's also part our own field. And there's still a lot of speech pathologists that'll even tell me like, you know, they're not necessary. I just know from experience if they're aspirating or, you know, things like that. And I just, I have to keep my cool. But (laughs) yeah. so you have you bring endoscopy to the to the facilities. Do you have fluoroscopy as well? No, we do not. I'm in New York State, and we can't have mobile. There's no mobile fluoroscopy where I am. So what do you feel like? So some states do. What do you feel like you're missing without having fluoroscopy available? What do I feel like I'm missing? I don't feel like I'm missing a ton because I feel like it at least gives us an idea of is there something going on or not kind of like you said with the reflex finding score, is there something going on or is there not? But then, you know, I will, if, if we do suspect there's something more, like you said, in the esophagus that we do need to see on fluoro, I think that's kind of the big piece. You know, it's nice to be able to get that, you know, top-down view of the larynx and see if there is inflammation. But like you said, on fluoro, you can see actually what might be going on structurally that may be playing a role in causing that. Have you ever snuck the laryngoscope into the esophagus? I have not, no. <laughs> I don't really want to lose my license, so <laughs> why should I? Um, in theory, yeah, I think that. Um, okay. <laughs> right, because if you know if, if you're not, you could identify a problem. You know who who else is there, right? You're the yeah yeah. You're in the trenches, right? If if not you, who? Yeah. You know, and speech pathologists, we've been advocating for years to perform manometry, right? So it's yep the same size, if not smaller, than a manometry catheter, and it has a camera on it, so it's safer to pass a small endoscope into the esophagus than a manometry catheter, which is done blindly. Super right? fascinating. Yeah. What Do you think this is something we'll eventually be doing? Gosh, I don't know. I do know that, that at least in California, there are PAs that are doing esophagoscopy, I know overseas we, we've trained SLPs doing esophagoscopy, but I don't, I don't know. I think certainly in terms of a knowledge base and a skill set, you it's well within your capabilities. I think it's really just going to end up being a political reason. Is this? That was going to be my next question. Right? Yeah. Like ASHA doesn't even let you diagnose things, right? How ridiculous is that? Well, yeah, yeah. Right. A, lot, a lot of it, too, is, is state-driven. There's some states that have regulations on what we can and can't do, and I think that's just silly. So Yeah. You know, you're, there are so few people who are really 
passionate about taking care of people with swallowing problems. So you are a cherished commodity. Yeah. Well, thank you. Do you, do you think that, that the ENTs would give us trouble if we started doing that? Not if you started doing it with them, uh, you know, if you had a right partner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the whole key to this is putting a right team together that has each other's back, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, provides better care. That's what, we're, that's what we're all about at UC Davis. Yeah, well, I love that. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I, I love our profession. I love what we can do, but some people think that we shouldn't be doing so much. So yeah, stop helping people so much. Right. You're too darn good. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. How dare us? Right. Right. <laughs> well, what's next? I feel like I have so many things I want to talk to you about, Peter. I, um. Oh, what, so what were you saying? Kind of when we were off the air, we were talking about reflux, and you were saying that that can be considered is or is one of the most common forms of aspiration. Is that what? Is that what you said? No. Um, Reflux in the outpatient setting is the most common cause of dysphagia. Of dysphagia? So, yes. So okay. if you have somebody who points to their neck or points to their chest and says food gets stuck, right, as an outpatient, yep. so this is somebody who doesn't have a history of head and neck cancer, who doesn't have a neuromuscular, neurodegenerative disease, who hasn't had a stroke, right, this is a outpatient walkie-talkie, food sticks in my neck or in my chest, the most common cause for that person's dysphagia is acid reflux disease. So this is an LPR, right? This is typically esophagitis or esophageal stricture or cricopharyngeous muscle dysfunction or ineffective motility. This is a complication of gastroesophageal reflux disease causing their swallowing difficulty. Okay. And a third of the people who point to their neck and say food gets stuck here will actually have a distal cause of their swallowing difficulty. Patients are not very good at telling, uh, pinpointing where their symptoms are. Yes, I think that was a big. I think that was a big presentation at DRS a few years ago about, and I think that kind of blew everybody's mind about when patients say, you know, the food gets stuck right here. And it's actually not near there at all. <laughs> yeah. So I know we have we have we have dozens and dozens of fluoro because we have, we all have have all of our patients if we identify obstruction to point under fluoro where they're yeah you know where they're feeling their symptom and typically you know we've given this analogy all the time it's as if the toilet is overflowing and the pipes are clogged you know further down the line and all they sense is. You know, the toilet's overflowing. So. Oh, wow. I guess that's a good analogy. <laughs> that works. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the difference between LPR and GERD? Sure. We define, I guess, technically by the American Gastroenterology Association, GERD is defined as chronic symptoms or mucosal injury caused by the regurgitation of gastric contents into the esophagus. Similarly, the American Academy of Otolaryngology has defined laryngopharyngeal reflux as abnormal symptoms or laryngeal tissue injury caused by the regurgitation of gastric contents back into the upper airway. So the sort of the important thing to note in both those definitions is that you can have symptoms and have a normal endoscopy, or you can have an abnormal endoscopy and have no symptoms and still sort of be labeled with the disease, if you will. 
It's important to note that patients with this LPR symptom complex, and this symptom complex is universal, right? So it's, it transcends uh, our national borders. So a patient in China with this LPR symptom complex is very similar to somebody in Europe or somebody in North America. So we all know these patients, right? They have throat clearing, globus, sensation of post-nasal drip, excessive throat clearing intermittent hoarseness, globus, cough, right? The symptom complex is universal. And it's also important to note that this LPR symptom complex can be caused by other things. It doesn't have to be reflux disease. It can be caused by allergy or environmental toxins or pollutants. Or, you know, we've had issues with people exposed to the fires in Northern California up here. Or we've seen first responders on 9-11 with this similar symptom complex. So, Reflux is just one of these things that can cause this sort of conglomeration of symptoms. Okay, thank you. Did I say that on one breath again? I need to. You did. I need so that's okay. Therapy. That's okay. Oh, that was a good explanation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. What's next? What do you want to talk about next? How do you evaluate cricopharyngeous muscle dysfunction in the populations that you see? How do I evaluate? Because that's another common cause of swallowing difficulty in the aging population, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I don't know. Yeah. So I think that would be a big challenge for you guys with endoscopy because that's endoscopy is so essential, but I think it reaches its limits at the pharyngoesophageal segment, right? Yes, yes. Which is why um, you know, we utilize fluoroscopy in so many of our patients. Yeah. I just did a, a podcast last a few weeks ago, kind of about how we really should be advocating for both tests for our patients. And, you know, what's interesting is there's so many, you know, there's, depending on the, the facility, depending on the state you're in, it's very difficult to even get one of these tests done. So I think that's, you know, that's the hard part is, I, I hate to say out in the real world, because I know that, you know, we should be practicing perfectly, but <laughs> um, there are limitations on, you know, what we're, what we're able to get our hands on a lot of times. So I think that's, that's kind of one of my biggest struggles too. And one of my biggest passion projects is just educating everybody about, you know, not only do you need just one, but you really should get, you know, both tests done too. And, and it's, it's difficult for a lot of these facilities to justify paying for both of them. Yeah. Well, because we can go off the reservation here a little bit and talk about, you know, fees versus fluoro. Because I think in, you know, in our experience, an endoscopic swallow evaluation is more than al- adequate for diet allocation, right? To, so to safely assess uh, and make dietary recommendations, endoscopy is is more than sufficient to do that. As a surgeon, you know, one of the things I can actually alter is what's going on through the upper esophageal sphincter or the pharyngoesophageal segment, which is why for us fluoroscopy is so essential because if we identify there, that's something we can we can treat, right? Whether it's with um, you know a simple dilation or endoscopic or even open myotomy, and you know, that's something that we can readily treat and actually help somebody. So. That's why I think fluoroscopy is is really the primary thing you miss by not doing yeah. fluoroscopy in your setting. 
I, I love that you said that. And I think, you know, that's something that I just get so frustrated with too, is that so many of these hospitals, you know, either aren't doing fluoro or, you know, they'll say that it's not important and the patient can just get, get seen at their next level of care. But the fact of the matter is a lot of these times these patients get sent to their next level of care and they don't have access to fluoro. So I just get frustrated because, you know, and, and I know there's a lot of different factors that can weigh in and, you know, patient may get discharged before they can even get down to fluoro, but there are also SLPs that will say, you know, oh, they don't need it or they'll just get it at their next level. And I think that just does such a disservice when you literally have the machine right there that you could just do it. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And um, how aggressive are you in altering somebody's diet or even making them a non or recommending non-oral in somebody with advanced cognitive decline? I, I try, I try not to, I would say, I, you know, I, I'm really big on quality of life and I don't, think that really should be our first means. A lot of times I try to make it more of like a family discussion about patients' goals of care before I just, I'm really, I I don't like to just say, oh, this patient should be NPO or, oh, this patient needs to be on puree if they are someone that is, you know, towards end of life and that may not be the best quality of life for them. So I, I like to use it kind of as a tool to just explain to the family, you know, this is what's going on. This is what we're seeing this might be my recommendation, but you know, what do you, what does the patient want? You know, has the patient expressed wishes, things like that. So I don't know if that was the answer you were looking for. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I, you know, what I, okay. what I was interested in your opinion on because the, you see a lot of patients referred in from a nursing home or from, you know, end of life care who have been made non-oral and nobody sat down and had a discussion with the family and said, you know, what is this what um, you know, your loved one would have wanted? And is this, even though it may or may not extend their life to make them non-oral, is this something that you know, they would have wished for if they had the ability to make the decision on their own? Yeah, yeah. I think that, that's when I get so frustrated because I do, I see a lot of patients that, will be put NPO from the hospital and I'll get them and I'll see them and they'll say, you know, that, that was totally against my wishes. That's not what I wanted. No one ever explained it to me. I would have told them no way. And I just think it's so sad that we can't even take two minutes to ask the patient what they want. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, or, you know, it's, it's easier if you can, the patient has the capacity to answer you. It's, it's, it's more of a challenge when you have to track down who's in charge of, Making the decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. when, it, at least for us, it takes time that we often don't have, but we try and do our best. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And are you a big fan of thickeners, or what are your, I, your I, thoughts I, I on am thickeners? Not, I am not a big fan of them. I am not a big fan of them, but I am a fan of them when they are appropriate. I am not a big fan of just blindly putting someone on thickened liquids without an instrumental to say that we do need them. I think that's one of my big sticking points is I just get really frustrated when I see these reports from, you know, patients came from the hospital on putting thick liquids or honey thick liquids and, you know, never had 
an instrumental done, didn't ask if that was, you know, patient's preference, things like that. I get really frustrated with, but I absolutely do know that they have a role in what we do. But again, I really like to make sure that it's patient choice and they're okay with that. And because yeah. I think it's important that they're drinking as opposed to not drinking it because it has thickener in it. So. <laughs> and in general, what populations do you feel benefit from thickened liquids? Ooh. Um, you know, I'd say probably I see a lot of stroke, Parkinson's. Is that kind of what you're looking for? I was looking for your opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think that that's kind of the majority of the patients that I do see. So I, I do actually see, you know, I see a lot of like the kind of the developmental, developmentally disabled population too. And I think what I struggle with with those patients is that some of them are just functional aspirators. You know, they'll just, their, you know, their fees or their flora looks awful, but they've never had a pneumonia. So I think I get so frustrated when, you know, someone just automatically slaps them on thickened liquids without even digging into the history to see if, you know, have they gotten pneumonia? What's, you know, what's really going on there? So that's a population that I'm really passionate about, I guess, kind of protecting and making sure that it's totally necessary before you just go and mess with something that might be really important to them. Yeah, we actually talked about this at DRS last year. It's not aspiration that's the enemy, right? It's pneumonia that's the enemy. It's it's lung injury that's the enemy. It's not aspiration. And there's been a lot of good good work utilizing endoscopy by um, Susan Butler to suggest that you know a large percentage of the normal population may may aspirate intermittently. Yep. I had her on here last, I think it was last year too. Yeah. And that's one of my most favorite episodes. Cause I think it's just, you know, especially as someone that does fees all the time, it's crazy just to see how many patients or how many people just do silently aspirate, you know, and have never had any sort of pneumonia or repercussions from it. So. Yeah. And it's been one of our long-term projects at UC Davis to try and develop a pneumonia risk assessment is what we're trying to call it. So, you know, this would be have patient demographic information, have um, objective measurements from swallowing fluoroscopy and some uh, patient functional status measures, whether it's comorbidities or overall functional scores to determine, you know, what is this patient's risk of developing a pneumonia given what you're inputting into the equation, if you will. So that's sort of for us kind of the holy grail that we've been searching for and continue to to look for. Yeah, I think that would, I mean, especially in my setting, I think that would help so many, both patients and speech pathologists, because I think that's kind of what we do already is sort of that pros, cons list of, like you said, pneumonia risk. But I think if we were to have something that's, you know, been standardized, that would be extremely helpful. Yeah, and frequently we're at this point unsure, and you know we allow them to to get sick once, and you know before making a significant change, and hopefully that one sickness won't lead to their demise. Right, right. Yeah. Well, good. When do you guys think you'll have that out? Yeah, I don't know. We're working. <laughs> 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 we're working on. It. It's been a. All right, hopefully before I retire. How about that? Yeah. Well, good. Do me a favor and add that to the top of the priority list because okay. I think that's really important. So, yeah. You got it. Just, okay. Yeah. It just, it just awesome. made it 
to number one. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All this reflux talk is important, but I think that that was yeah, like you said, the holy grail. Well, you know, you bring you know, just to sort of come back to reflux again, when I graduated from medical school and became interested in head and neck surgery, I didn't never would have envisioned becoming a reflux expert. But again, the reality is it's the number one cause of solid food dysphagia. And that's, we didn't feel just like you get frustrated that your parent patients aren't adequately being taken care of. That's sort of what drove us into the reflux business yeah. to begin with. The reflux business. Yeah. yeah the desire to do better for our patients. Yeah. 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 I'm really fascinated, like you, what you said about the pill dysphagia too, because I think. It's so underappreciated. It's so underappreciated and it has a huge impact on compliance too. Can you talk, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. We, what you know, what we do know is that up to 40% of the population will report difficulty swallowing pills, that it's more common as we get older, that narrowing of the pharyngoesophageal segment is appears to be part of the normal aging process. Um, I would need a diagram to show you, but the pharyngoesophageal segment um sort of narrows from the inside out as we get older. We've looked at the prevalence of this cricopharyngeal webbing, and it's in almost 70% of people over the age of 60, and cadavers over the age of 65. And even on thoroscopy, where you can just see a small indentation, you can have up to a 50% narrowing of the pharyngoesophageal segment. So patients may only present with, hey, pills get stuck or or heavy meats or breads. But you know, this narrowing really contributes to difficulty in swallowing pills. And we do know that the more difficult it is for patients to swallow pills, the less likely they are to adhere to their to their medication regimen. So we've been a big proponent of pill lubricants. There's some interest, and we've actually done some work on pill lubricants. Oh wow! Yeah. I didn't. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, no, pill lubricants are definitely a thing. You know, a product out called Pill Glide, which is a throat spray that you can spray in. It's a kind of a slippery WD-40 for the throat, if you will. Awesome! Yeah. Um, yeah, but we've actually been working on a. Um, a product called Pill Hero, which is a, it's just a pill lubricant. It's kind of like a slippery, viscous lubricant. You put on a teaspoon and pop your pills on there, and it just helps them slide down easier. Awesome. Yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. Well, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because I just, you know, I mean, working in the nursing home, you just see, you know, the nurses walk around and hand them the little pill cup of 27 pills and tell them to swallow it all at once. So Yeah, it's a good luck. and. Makes- yeah. yeah, yeah. Make sure you get it all down to one gulp. So. Yeah. Do you ever add a pill to your endoscopic swallow studies? I don't regularly, but I do if it's something that they're suspecting or if if someone has has made a request. I've had a few, especially patients with Parkinson's, that really need to you know take the levodopa. Make sure they get that in right. Um, I've, I've had actual nurses like administer the levodopa while we have the scope in just to see what the patient's doing with it. And then other times I've just done like a tic-tac or something like that. I think what always gives people trouble are those gigantic calcium pills. 
And I don't know what another kind of candy to try to use to replicate that, but that just seems cool in and of itself. So I almost killed Becky Leonard with a peanut M&M one. <laughs> oh, you know, Becky, <laughs> I, I I know of her. I, I don't yeah, know. Of her, you so. should have her on talk about her her swallowtail. She has a, a yeah. swallowtail software out. But yeah, no, we were we were goofing around. She's my partner here for for years. Um, and I don't know if I sprayed her nose to get her numb or something, but I gave her a peanut M M&M and M, and it literally just flopped right into her airway. Oh my god. Yeah, and she was able to cough it out, but it was touch and go there for for a moment. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if yeah, using peanut M and M's is probably not the best. Yeah, yeah. Best thing for I pills. actually, I, I was asked to do a fees on a patient. She was on hospice, and they just kept finding like these gigantic bags of M and M's in her nightstand. And she was supposed to be NPO. She had gotten a recommendation from the hospital to be NPO, but she was sneaking in these gigantic bags of M&Ms. And so I did the fees and, you know, they were like, don't even waste your time doing other food. She literally does not eat anything other than M&Ms. So let's just try the M&Ms. And she probably aspirated like 20 M&Ms on that study. I mean, just oh. not even chewed, like not even chewed, just oh. right down, right down the airway. And everyone, in the, you know, you try to remain as like professional and poker face yeah. as possible, but everyone in the room was like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> she was just the cutest little old lady. And she's like, honey, I told you, I don't give a damn. I'm going to just keep eating these things. I don't care where they end up. I'm going to just keep eating them. That's <laughs> like, Okay. <laughs> that was probably the I most. I guess they melt. Yeah. Yeah, that was probably the most cringeworthy one I've ever done in my life, and she just couldn't have cared less. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see that video if you still have it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to pull it out of the archives. So. Okay. Good. I'd like to see your archives someday. It's, you must have some seen some cool things over the years. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I think we I think we covered everything. Is there anything else you want to touch on? No. Um, you know, good luck with the new baby. Thank you. <laughs> Love to get some sleep sometime, but maybe some year I will. Yeah. Well, you don't look tired at all. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all right, Peter. Well, thank you so much. I'm gonna. We'll make sure that we get the, these products linked up in the show notes too, because I think you know, they're really useful and valuable. And like I said, I didn't even know that pill glide was a thing. So yeah. we'll make sure to get reflux gourmet linked up too. So you got it. Uh, hey, keep, keep in touch. Okay. I will. Thank you very much. You got it. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.